I appreciate the opportunity this morning to be uh, in this pulpit and share with you what God has uh, laid on my heart. But probably most of you are wondering, who is this guy? All right? Uh, people say that, uh, or get me confused with Steve Pettit. I think it's because we look a little bit alike. I think I'm better looking than Steve Pettit, by the way. But uh, he's certainly smarter than I am, so I'll take that as a compliment. As Pastor Jerry mentioned, my wife and I, Lisa, have been here in South Carolina for four years now. And what led us to coming to South Carolina was that uh, our first batch of grandchildren were snatched away. And so uh, if you see my son-in-law out in the, uh, in the atrium, you can uh, confront him about that. We love it in South Carolina, and we have uh, two of our four children now living here and seven of our 13 grandchildren. Praise the Lord. That's a marvelous thing to have 13 grandchildren. People say, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm Papa Dops. Okay, that's my goal. That's my goal. But they're attending Calvary, and uh, it's been a blessing to be in the ministry here, to be here with them. I will tell you, it wasn't Pastor Haney that attracted me to Calvary. It was the grandchildren. Sorry, brother. I didn't mean to mention that. But I will say that uh, there are some adjustments as we come south from being up in the Northeast for over 30 years. And I had to learn quickly that in the South, when someone says, bless your heart, it may have a different meaning. (laughs) In the North, uh, we mean truly, may God bless you when we say bless your heart. Down in the South, they typically mean, oh, you poor thing. So if after the service you come up to me and you say, bless your heart, I'll get the message, okay? I'll understand where you're coming from. You know, the hardest part of preparing a message is when you're studying the Word of God. It's like eating at a buffet. As you study the Word of God, there's so much that God lays on your heart that you want to share that you actually have to pare it down so that you can deliver the message in the time time frame that they give you to preach. So I'm thankful this morning that the leadership of the church, and we have two pastors here, right? We have the senior pastor, which, by the way, he's half the man that I used to know. And then we have a former senior pastor up here. So both of them have agreed to allow me to preach until 1 o'clock this afternoon, if that's okay with you. So we're looking forward to seeing what God has in store. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5, which is where the Lord has led us to today. And as you do that, let me open in a word of prayer, asking for God's blessing upon the reading of his word. Father, as we look to you in your word this morning, we pray that you would reveal to us what is that that we need to hear and what we can learn and draw from the words as we read them. And I've prepared and studied this passage, but alone I am a weak vessel. So I ask that your spirit would challenge us this morning, teach us what you would have for us, and may it stir our hearts. Amen. It's timely in our present culture in a world which seems to be in such chaos to be studying the book of Acts, and you know that. Pastor Haney has laid a good foundation for why we're here. The book of Acts is the history of the church. It's the foundation, its function, and its great commission. We're truly in a time when perhaps now more than ever, the world needs to hear and receive Christ, our Savior. And it's the church that has been given the mandate by Christ himself, to evangelize and share the gospel, to be witnesses of him to the uttermost parts of the earth. Certainly, we can reflect on history, and we know that there are many times in the past of great chaos and great fear, severe persecution in world history. But there's something going on all about us today. Do you feel it? It's my personal conviction that we're living in a time of great upheaval, And uh, we're just as we're seeing in the early church, Satan is certainly at work 
to disrupt and to turn the hearts of men away from God and the message of salvation through Christ. He's busy. He's at work. Satan's hard at work to sow a willful ignorance of God in the hearts and minds of man. I was asked the other day by a new believer that I'm discipling, and he says, do you think we're in the end times? And I responded, I said, well, certainly one day closer. It's not for us to know the time, but I believe Satan is sensing that it's drawing near. That led me to Romans chapter 1 where it says, and for this cause God gave them up to their own vile affection. You know what's going on in the world. And so this was appropriate as I was discipling this young man. And I read to him Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. If you're not familiar with that passage, I would encourage you to study that. It certainly reads like the headlines of our news in this day and age. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness goes on through that passage of Scripture, and it lists all the various sins and behavior that are ungodly and ends with this verse in verse 32 of chapter 1. It says, Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's falling faster day by day as we look around paraphrase a quote from Billy Graham is actually from his wife it says if God doesn't come soon and judge America he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah but before I go too far down that path brother that's not the message for today I don't believe God is quite done with what the world has in store just yet hopefully we'll recognize the timeliness of our study in the early church the foundation of the church in the book of Acts is to serve as a clarion call for all of the church today. How will they hear without a preacher? Romans chapter 10. And how shall they preach except they be sent? Well, the church has been sent. We as believers are here today and not in heaven because we are to do the evangelism. Christ has built and equipped his church and command his people to fulfill that purpose. So we find ourselves in the book of Acts, in a history book, and it serves as a dictate, a roadmap, if you will, for the church today. Having worked out our way through these first five chapters of Acts, let's do a quick review to provide a context of the passage of Acts chapter 5, verse 17. In chapter 1, we see the church begins with Christ, giving the call, the commandment, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Tell people about me in all the other parts of the world. In chapter 2, we see the preaching of Peter at the Pentecost, where he says to the people, repent and save yourself from this untoward generation. That's a message we need to give today in our world around us. Also in Acts chapter 2, we see the foundation of the church, the building blocks for the church. They were separated. Come ye from among them and be separated. There were separated 3,000 souls in one day saved. And put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were separated. They were steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. They were supernatural and had many signs and wonders. This is what we call the apostolic authority. That during the times of the apostles, Christ had risen and the apostles were left and they were given special power, supernatural powers. The church was sacrificial and they shared as they had need and they had singleness in one accord 
singleness of mind and heart. And it was a successful church, having favor both with God and man. And we see the church grow. 3,000 people in one day. It's growing. Chapter 3, Pastor Robert says, what's in a name? What is that name? The name is Jesus, the Prince of Life. They are his witnesses. Jesus, the Son of God, is risen. He's the healer. He's our Savior. What's in a name? Chapter 3, Brother Arms talks about the Holy Spirit sermon. It says, repent and be converted. It's not enough just to repent, but it's to be converted, to change, to affect change in your life, change your behavior, change your thoughts, change your actions, that you may be a witness for Christ and indwelling Holy Spirit empower you. Pastor Horn in chapter 4 says success breeds opposition. It's our first persecution that we read about here in the first five chapters of Acts. With great growth and success, it grieved the authorities. The high priest, the Sadducees, those in control of the temple were grieved by this massive revival of thousands of people. We also see in verse 12 of chapter 4, the great gospel verse, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Then Brother Chase in chapter 4 says that been with Jesus was his title. In chapter 4, verse 13, it's the source of boldness. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. It was obvious to them. Chapter 4, Pastor Wells talks about the power of prayer, also powerful. Appreciate the many that have been prayed for me this week as I prepare. It's been four years since I've been in the pulpit, but I love it. And I'm looking forward to seeing what God has in store for us. But the power of prayer in chapter 4. An empowered church is a praying church. I'm reminded of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, when he would preach, he would down in the basement below his pulpit, he would have a furnace room. And he would have his deacons. And he would have the leaders of the church and the men of the church. And they would be on their knees sitting around the furnace in the basement praying for Spurgeon as he was preaching the word of God. An empowered church is a praying church. An empowered church is is saturated in the word of God. We need to be steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, and we need to be steadfast in the word of God. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It's profitable. That word profitable. We like that word, don't we? That word profitable. For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness, that is right living according to the word of God. An empowered church has to be saturated in the word of God. An empowered church is an emboldened church. Chapter 4, verse 3, it says that they spake the word of God with boldness. That boldness comes through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, through the power of God working through us. Then in chapter 4 and then on to chapter 5, Pastor Jerry gave us a wake-up call. Gave us a wake-up call, and there were really two parts of that call to display. The first was the church was unified. The church had a unity with one heart and with great power and great grace. But we also witnessed a great depravity. We saw Ananias and Sapphira. We saw the story. You know the story. But that highlighted, punctuated for us the need for the church to be holy and to be righteous. We need to be right living according to the word of God. We see that great fear came upon those that witnessed that action with Ananias and Sapphira. And we must be aware in our church of sin that could creep into the church. 
We need to deal with it. As Peter dealt with Ananias and Sapphira, we have to deal with sin in our lives, and the church has to deal with sin with believers that would come into these doors. We saw the unity of the church and the great depravity. So as we come together this morning in the middle of chapter 5, and I trust you've turned to chapter 5 and are there with me, there's yet another account of persecution. Remember what I mentioned earlier. With success comes Satan. Whenever a church is successful, you can count on persecution. Whenever a church is successful, you can count on Satan creeping in unawares. We need to be aware. Be sober. We need to be be sober, be vigilant. For our adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5.8. Familiar verse to you. But have you really studied that? It says, be sober, that is to be alert, be vigilant, be aware. For your adversary, that is Satan, walks around like a, a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You know, Satan doesn't walk right up to you and say, hey, I'm here and I'm looking to take you. Or I'm looking to cause you to stumble. Satan creeps in behind the bushes like a lion would of his prey, and then he leaps out at a time when he sees his opportune. We need to be aware, be sober, and be vigilant. And so now if you're still with me, and I'm looking at the clock, and I still have two and a half hours to go, so praise the Lord for that. Let's look at Acts chapter 5. Beginning as a backdrop, we look at Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Pastor Jerry did share some of that, but I want to go through it again because I believe it serves as a great backdrop to our passage of Scripture that we start in 17, verse 17. So let me read 12 to 16 along with you. I'm reading from the King James Version. That's because I'm an old man. And verse 12 says, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And Solomon's porch is around the temple. It's kind of like what we like here in the south to have a front porch. And you can see Peter and John standing on Solomon's porch. It's an area that Peter had preached at before. It's also an area that Christ had preached from. So it was a very popular gathering spot for preaching. And so they're preaching at Solomon's porch. In verse 13, And of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnify them. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that in just a second. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. And in verse 16, there came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. We just went from a great fear, from Ananias and Sapphira, a great fear had come over them. We just went from a great fear in the church to a great revival in the church. There are thousands of people that are thronging to this area of the temple where Peter and John are preaching from the porch, and it's exploding in great popularity and growth. We see great miracles and healings taking place. People are coming from not only the city of Jerusalem, but they're coming from the regions all around Jerusalem. And they're bringing people in on cots. And they're bringing people in on couches. And their hope is that even just by walking by the shadow of Peter, that they would be healed. That the unclean spirits would be vexed from their body. People are coming from all over the region. Notice verse 13 as well, if you want to look back there with me. And it says, And the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnify them. That's one of the reasons why King James is hard when you have words like durst. It means that no men 
some of the men that were there, some of the people that were there witnessing this preaching, they desired not to become part of the church. But they still had respect for the church. Well, what does that mean? Why would that be in the middle of this passage? That means what I was talking about where sin would creep into the church. Remember what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They sold the property. Barnabas had just been an example to him. He was the encourager, so he encouraged them. So they wanted to be like him, and so they sold the property, and they're going to give the proceeds to the church, right? But instead of giving all the proceeds, they stick a little bit in their pockets, and no one will know, and they give part of the proceeds to the church. But they had promised that they would give all the proceeds to the church, and that promise wasn't to the church. It wasn't to a Bob or a Bill. It was to the Lord and the Holy Spirit. And so Peter said, why have you grieved the Holy Spirit? Boom, they dropped dead. And so all the church had great fear. Part of that fear led to some people that were witnessing this preaching from Peter and John to stop and to halt and to say, ah, I'm not sure I want to be a part of this. I respect what you're saying. That's why I'm here listening. But I've got some hesitancy. And that hesitancy could very easily be just as they had with Ananias and Sapphira, where there's a sin, there's something in their lives. There's something that they have, something that they possess, something that that controls them, that they're just not ready to give up. And they're afraid that if they were to say that they're believers in Christ and not give up all of that sin and repent and change their lives, the same thing could happen to them that happened to Ananias and Sapphira. So while they respected the preaching and the teaching, they were not quite sure they're ready to make that investment in that change in their life. Does that sound familiar to the people that you may be witnessing to? Does that sound familiar to you? I was 29 years old before I got saved. Rising up in the corporation, going quickly, relocated across the country six times. Man, I was on top of the world. Had everything going for me until God broke my heart, until God got a hold of my heart, I didn't want to give up all the trappings of the success. I didn't want to give all those things up, but God broke me, and I accepted Christ as my Savior at the age of 29. Praise the Lord for that. But there are people all around us that are right on that precipice, right on that edge, where they have sin in their life, they have something in their life that's just preventing them from making that decision to accept Christ as their Savior. And so we see that in chapter chapter 5, verse 13, where there were those that respected them, but they just weren't ready to give that up. So with great, uh, great revival, great go- growth, and great popularity will come great jealousy and persecution. And so we transition into the second persecution that we see here in our passage for today. That's just the introduction in our passage today, verses 17 to 32. If you'll turn there with me. Now, I was going to kind of walk you through all of these things, but I know because of time, well, let me do it anyway, Right? The time is my time. When I turn off the mic, that's when we're done. Amen? Okay. 17 to 32. We're going to look at the verses individually. I tend to go expository through the preaching, uh, through the passages. We're going to look at the verses individually, and I'll give you the points. But I want to kind of get the setting for you. You've already seen a little bit of that. The apostles are preaching from Solomon's porch, and they're preaching to thousands of people. People are coming to know the Lord. They're getting saved. They're getting healed. They're getting the unclean spirits removed from them. And it's not just 3,000, it's 5,000 of people. Thousands and thousands of people. You can see the caravans that are coming all around from the cities and the regions about Jerusalem. They're coming to hear the message. Some of them walk by Peter just hoping that his shadow would work for the healing of them okay marvelous revival great revival well what's going to happen when you have a great revival you're going to have great persecution right 
I remember when I got saved. I got saved, I was excited for the Lord. And then I went back to work, and I was working in the corporate world, and I was working with uh, one of my managers. He was not a very friendly man. He was a very demanding person. We were riding on the bus, on the, excuse me, on the train, coming out of the city of Chicago, going to the airport. And I can remember him yelling this close to my face. He was yelling because the meeting didn't go well, and he was blaming me. I was the underling. I was responsible. He was blaming me. And he said to me, he said these words. I had just recently got saved. He said to these, me these words. He said, why aren't you fighting back? He wanted to fight. He wanted to stir something up. And I said, you know what? I've got the peace of God in my heart. I know he's in control. You see, when we see revival, we're going to see persecution. Maybe when you got saved, immediately after something came along to challenge you, Satan doesn't give up lightly. Satan doesn't give up lightly. And so we're going to see with great revival, great persecution. And so the people in charge of the temple, this would be the high priest and also the Sadducees, they're in charge of control of the temple. And they're in a position of authority that's been appointed to them by Rome. And so they're very jealous, they're very guarded with that authority. They don't want to lose that authority. And so with this revival that's taking place, not in the temple only, but on the porches and all about the streets, you couldn't deny it. With this revival, they were concerned that these people would overrun them in the authority or that Rome would contact them and say, hey, listen, you've lost control of the temple. We're removing you from that position. They were afraid. And so they said, we better get these guys in control. And so they arrest. This is the second persecution. It's distinct from the first persecution in this regard. In the first persecution that Brother Robert shared with us, that first persecution, it was John and Peter that were arrested and put in prison. And the second one is all the apostles. They're arrested and they're thrown into jail. They they lock the door and they put the guards at the door and they go home for the evening. And tomorrow they're going to have a council. They're going to have a court hearing. They're going to draw all the apostles into the court and they're, they're going to uh, indict them. But something happens in the middle of the night. An angel of the Lord, not the angel of, not the angel of the Lord, but an angel sent from the Lord, a messenger, comes and he opens the door to the prison and he releases the apostles. And he says to the apostles, he says, go back to the temple and teach. And we're going to touch on that in just a second. And so they go back to the temple and teach in the next morning. And, and uh, the court comes back together, the council, the high priest, and the apostles. I mean, excuse me, the, the Sadducees come together. And they say, okay, bring in the prisoners. Here's the problem. Prisoners are gone. One of the temple guards that was from the prison comes in and he goes, we've got a problem, sir. The prisoners are not here. They've left. What do you mean they've left? He said they've left, and not only have they left, but the door to the prison cell is locked, and the guards are still in position in front of the door. Oh, this is not good. This is not good. The Sadducees, we call them this. We call them sad, you see. And the reason is they don't believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they believe in Jesus Christ, and they know who Jesus Christ is, and I know they know the power of Jesus Christ, and I'll tell you why. Because it was them at the crucifixion that said, and his blood be upon our hands. They knew Jesus Christ, but they wouldn't mention his name. But they were afraid this is going to stir something up here. We've got these large crowds of people outside, and now we've got these apostles that we've arrested, lock the door, put guards in front of the door, and in the middle of the night, without knowledge of the, of the guards, these men are gone? About that time, a man comes in and he says, uh, not only are they gone, but guess what they're doing? They're back at the temple preaching. Oh, this is not good. 
The Sadducees are concerned that this might get out. If this gets out, this is going to get out of control. We've got to go get them. And so they send the temple guards, and they send them to go get the apostles in the midst of this large throng of people who are just in a great revival of excitement, of being healed and seeing the miracles. So the apostles are surrounded by their fan base, right? And here come the temple guard, and the temple guard come, and and they say, we can't remove them with violence. We can't go put them in shackles and drag them out of this crowd. This crowd will have our heads. They'll stone us. And so they took them without violence. But here's the interesting thing. The apostles humbly and willfully went with the prison guards back to the prison. And the next day, the council has its, its court hearing. And it says, didn't we tell you not to preach of this man? Didn't we tell you not to teach of this man and his power? Didn't we tell you that you're putting his blood on us? That's not right. And that's when Peter responded and said, we ought to obey God and not man. Now, be clear. The Bible also tells us in many locations that we are to obey the authority, the government, the ruling authority. But we'd obeyed God when he overrides that authority. And Peter said, you can't hold us back from preaching the word. You can't hold us back from being witnesses for Christ. We're going to do that. We're going to obey God and not obey man. So we, get, we find ourselves in, in 5, verse 17 to 18. And I just want to kind of go through and give you some quick points as we go. If you'll turn with me to 17, verse 17 and 18, let me read it, and then I'll give you some points to, uh, to write down. Verse 17, it says, The high priest rose up, and they that were with him, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation. Perhaps your version of the Bible says jealousy, because that's what they were. They were uh, filled with jealousy. In verse 18, And they laid their hands on the apostles, and they put them in a common prison. I can tell you it's interesting to be in prison, not because I was in prison, but because I preached at the prison. At least I'm pretty, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what it was. It was interesting. I'd go into the prison, and I'd been there for 13 years when we, when we finally moved to South Carolina, and prisons in New Hampshire. And uh, I used to tell the men who were there in the chapel, I'd say, so for, to some of you, I've been here in prison longer than some of you have been. And they'd always respond, and they'd say, yeah, but you get to leave. Prison's not an easy place. You walk into the front gate, you've got to show your ID. You walk into a series of gates, and you hear the buzz, and you see the doors opening. I remember my first year preaching in the prison, they allowed us to go into maximum security. That was an interesting thing. You go into maximum security, they open up the door to the hallway of maximum security cells. And it was more of a discipleship Bible study. And they'd say, okay, you're in the third room on the right, the third cell on the right. And I was thinking as I'm walking down this aisle, this, this hallway within the maximum security wing of the prison, I'm walking down there and I'm thinking, you know, if something happens to me, they'll never get to me in time. They'll never get to me in time. Maximum security, it's not a place you want to be. And so they throw the apostles into the common prison. You see, the volume and the excitement of the people from the most recent revival, the city's filled with these people. Miracles and healings, multitudes are being added to the church. And as I mentioned, a righteous and powerful church will always bring persecution. So there's a hostile reaction that takes place from this revival. Did you know that in, uh, in the world there are over 340 million Christians That's one in every eight Christians that are persecuted. 
that are discriminated against because of their faith? 340 million, one in eight, countries like China, Russia, Middle Eastern countries, African countries, you're aware of them. We see pastors that are in prison, churches that are in hiding, and entire communities that are persecuted, taken away from their homes and enslaved because of their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. We live in a free country, and we praise God for that, that we have the freedom to move about, to share the gospel with no fear of persecution. But there's a growing sentiment. Do you remember what I said earlier about how it creeps in unawares? We need to be sober and vigilant in our country today. That freedom is slowly eroding. It's not going to come up and slap us. Its freedom is slowly eroding in our country of America. So we see a hostile reaction to the great great revival. We also see a hopeless indignation. That is a jealousy. There were two things for the Sadducees and the leaders that we had. One was they had a fear of man. As I mentioned earlier, because of the Roman authority, they were afraid of losing their position. Afraid of losing their position. When we witness to people many times, one of the greatest hurdles to overcome, obstacles to overcome, is their position, is their image. They don't want to give up that position. They don't want to give up that image and accept Christ and become a Christian, one of those, because they're afraid of what they might face in mock and ridicule. And in this case, the Sadducees and the leaders of the church, the high priests, they had a fear of man and losing that position. Their anxiety came from the apostles and the growing popularity. What if all the people suddenly wanted to put them in a position of authority and not us? The growing popularity of the apostles. They also had a fear of God, and that is the message of Christ, whom they had murdered and is now alive in his work, and you can see it all about him, the miracles and the wonders, and the message of a true life is spreading even beyond their city, and it's creating turmoil. These leaders cannot have another sect take their power and their position. Hopeless indignation, jealousy. So we see a hostile reaction. We see hopeless indignation. Now in verse 19, verses 21, uh, 19 to 21, we see help from God. Help from God. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go, stand, and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning. And taught. Came in the form of a messenger. We see it all throughout the book of Acts and all throughout Scripture, the form of a messenger. Have you ever seen an angel? I don't mean what your grandchildren draw in a picture. You know, probably all of us as believers will at one time or another in our life come in contact with an angel, and you won't even know it. But this was very apparent. This angel came and he's removing the apostles while there's a guard, there's guards standing outside and the doors are locked. He's removing the apostles from the prison cell. The Bible tells us that I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. God won't leave you alone. When you go to witness, when you go to share, God is with you. He says, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. The apostles knew that. They weren't sure when they got locked up the night before what was going to happen, but they knew that God was in control, and he wasn't just going to abandon them. And sure enough, an angel of the Lord opens the door and releases them. Notice that the angel did not say, you're free to escape, flee, get away from here, hide. I can't keep coming back and unlocking these doors for you. Get out of here. No, instead, what's he say? He says, go to the temple and preach. Wait a minute, we just got arrested for that last night. That's right, go back and preach. 
God doesn't allow trials and persecution to afflict us. He allows them to advance his purpose. You may be going through a trial. You may have persecution. You may feel like, I'm just not sure. But God will use that to bring about his purpose in your life and for his will. So the apostles, they simply obeyed God and left the rest to God. Verses 21 to 26, we see that they were also perplexed. So not only was there this second persecution, but there was this astonishment on behalf of these that were in control. Verses 21 to 26 says, And when they heard that they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught, but the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together. Now it's the next morning. They're calling back the court. And all the senate of the children of Israel and sent, and, uh, sent to the prison to have them brought in. But when the officers came and found, found them not in the prison, they returned and told the council. He's not, they're not there. Saying, the prison truly found we shut with all safety, and the keeper standing without before the doors. But when we had opened the doors, we found no man within the prison doors. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow, this might get out of hand. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom you put in prison, they're standing in the temple, and they're teaching the people. You went to the prison to look for them, to convict them. They're over on Solomon's porch preaching the word of God. Isn't that amazing? Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. So they're perplexed. The prisoners are gone. They're astounded. The doors are locked, so the guards are still in place, but the prisoners are gone. How could that have happened? I don't know. But they're back in the temple preaching. They were powerless to stop the spread of the word of God and the message they were charged with. They were powerless to do that. The Sadducees and the leadership couldn't stop this. There had been one revival persecution. There had been a second revival, a second persecution. We locked them up, and they're back out preaching again. What is going on? They were powerless to stop the spread of the message. And they had a fear of the people's response if they were to challenge that. These people had come from far and wide and had seen the power. Unless they be stoned, they said, we've got to be careful when we go get these guys. But the apostles willingly returned, knowing that God, if he had freed them before, he would free them again. So the next morning, they're called into the council, and it's going to be a court hearing. And when they get there, the tables are turned. And we see in verses 27 to 31, after they were perplexed, the apostles began to proclaim. The proclaiming we see in verse 27 to 31, boldness in the face of persecution. Verse 27 says, And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, notice they didn't say Christ. They didn't use his name. They just said his name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew, and hanged on a tree. That is the cross. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be the prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. They were bold in the face of persecution. 
We ought to obey God rather than men. Indeed, we are to obey authority. But when it contradicts with the authority of God, we're going to obey God every time. Peter, rather than coward, goes on to proclaim then the message of this life. Do you remember what the angel said? Go back to the temple and preach the message of this life. What life? Well, what life were they witnesses to? They were, life, they were witnesses to the life of Christ and his miracles, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and the miracles and the healings that he performed and his ascension to heaven. They were witnesses to that. We are witnesses to what they did, to the apostles and the inspired word of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're like the apostles. We should proclaim the message of life. He proclaims Christ crucified, risen, and sitting on the right hand of God. He proclaims Christ, the beloved Son, our Savior, is the one to give us repentance and forgiveness of our sins. He presents the gospel to the very people that would persecute him. He turns the tables. I'm glad that light blinds me so I can't see the clock. That's good. We'll just move on. Let me tell you an interesting story about preaching in the prison. I've already told you one, but here's another. When I preached in the chapel at the prison, there would be a group of people, probably about 40, 50 people sometimes. They had to sign up to go into the chapel every Sunday. And so I would preach to the chapel, but from time to time there would be a group of men in the men's prison that would sit across the back. They were a gang of sorts, and you can probably surmise as to who they were. They were a type of gang that no other pe- none of the other population of the prison wanted to mess with. And they would come and they would sit in the back of the prison, and they would purpose to challenge me as the preacher on that Sunday. What was interesting was that normally the crowd that I was preached to in the chapel, they had great interaction. They would answer questions. I could ask them questions. They would ask questions of me. We'd have great interaction. But on those Sundays when that gang would come in and sit across the back, they all sat across the back. You know who they were because of the markings on their body and so forth. They would sit across the back, and everyone in the chapel would be quiet. When they challenged me, no one in the chapel would turn around and look at them and say, what are you asking that question for? No, they just sat very quietly. It was obvious that this gang had power within the prison system. One of the first things you learn when you get into prison, if you're ever convicted and have to go to prison, heaven forbid, but if you do, you have to learn there's a new way of living, a new lifestyle in the prison that's different, different rules in the prison. So the, the crowd was quiet. But they would challenge me, and the way they would challenge me is they would ask the questions based on the scripture that I was reading. They would ask a question hoping to validate their position, which was usually one verse of scripture mixed and matched with other secular books and other books of other religions and philosophies that would validate their position and their right to harm other people. And they'd ask that question. Of course, they'd quote the scriptures, so they thought, well, that's going to empower us, and he won't be able to answer the question. Well, what you have to do in those situations in a chapel is you can't just stand up there and shake around the pulpit like I'm doing this morning. You have to get down, and you walk down the aisle, and I would walk down to the aisle, and they, they would be sitting right here, and I would literally stand this close to them, and I would challenge them back with scripture and refute what they were, what they were stating. And what's interesting is during those times that... They would double the guards, because people had to sign up to go into the chapel. They would double the guards, and they would set up additional microphones and video cameras to kind of look like a studio when I would go in. So if I walked in and I saw it set up like a studio, I knew I was in trouble that the gang was coming in that Sunday. But what's interesting is, 
one of the Sundays, a couple of Sundays after that gang, they would be there for about two weeks and then they would stop coming. Then they'd come back in about another six months and do it again. But a couple Sundays after they had been there, one of the gang members, again, I could recognize him, came up to the service by himself. Unusual. I'm sure he probably had to sneak in away from his gang so they didn't know he was by himself. And after the service, he came forward and he asked how he could come to have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that marvelous? Turn the tables. The apostles turned the tables to the leadership that were trying to shut them down. And instead, they preached the gospel, the message of this life, right back to those that were in authority, right back to those that were persecuting them. This was a true reversal of persecution. Now, (laughs) the Sadducees and the temple guard, they were the ones that were on trial. Verse 32. Verse 32. So we see the second persecution. We've seen the perplexing, the astonishment. We see the apostles proclaiming. And now we see a word that's going to be what I would call proving. We are to be the witnesses. Verse 32 says this. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. They were direct witnesses to Christ, and we are witnesses to the apostles. And we have the indwelling Holy Spirit and the inspired word to direct us. The saved, that is the believers, are to obey God. When you call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, I just said it there, what do you call him? He's your Lord. He's your master. He's in control of your life now. He's in control of your path and your goals and your aspirations and your direction. We are to proclaim the will of God and the message to the world. That was his command. He's our Lord and master. We have to fulfill that. Let me quote to you a passage from Romans chapter 12. It's my life verse. It says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren. So Paul writing is talking to brothers and sisters in Christ, just as I am this morning. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. We call that a verse about worship, but it's also a really a great verse to unpack. I beseech you, I beg of you, As brothers and sisters in Christ, by the mercies of God, that is God's mercy has been upon you, that you present your body a living sacrifice. Sacrifice, whoa, wait a minute, sacrifice. I was okay with the song and the worship part of the service, but now you're asking me to sacrifice? Present your body a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. That means a walking testimony. A walking sacrifice for Christ. Holy Ah, you got to live a holy life, acceptable unto God, which is your extraordinary, outrageous, I can't believe you would ask at service. No, it says it's your reasonable service. Well, how do I go about doing that? Verse 2. And be not conformed to this world. Your eyes, your focus, your goal should not be upon this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we renew our mind? We read God's word. We study God's word. We pray to God. We go to worship service. We fellowship with believers. By the renewing of your mind, that you may be, and here it is, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. 
Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, renewed, sanctified, set apart for God so that you can prove. Prove to who? Prove to the world. What is that? Good. The life of a Christian is good, amen? Peace that passes all understanding. Blessings that are abundant. Healings and miracles that take place with no explanation. The life of a Christian is good. That good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12, 1 to 2. As believers in the church, we're here to evangelize. That's our mission. We're empowered by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God in us. In John chapter 14 and 15, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have sent unto you. He'll teach you the things that I've taught you. But when the comfort has come, he shall testify of me. He'll teach you things that I have taught you, and he'll teach you of things yet to come. Isn't that marvelous? We have indwelling within us the Holy Spirit. It's not me. I'm just the body. He's the Lord and master of my life, and he has sent the Holy Spirit to indwell within me to give me the power to be the witnesses and to evangelize this world. We are empowered by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we should be bold in the face of persecution with courage and power. It's Old Testament, or excuse me, I was going to quote Old Testament, but I decided to give you 2 Timothy 1.7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Are we a bold, per- uh, bold church? Are we a bold church preaching and teaching the word of God? Are we a lukewarm church, cowering to the opposition and accommodating the world's reaction and influence? We ought to obey God rather than man. It might turn people away. It might make them happy, as they were in verse 13, to respect us, but they don't really want a piece of it. But God's in control, and he is the one that will bring the fruit and the rewards. If we're not facing persecution, then we may not be boldly proclaiming Christ. So we see that second persecution. We see the astonishment or the perplexing. We see the apostles proclaiming, and we see the command to us that we are to be proving what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Let me ask you, what's holding you back? What's keeping you captive? What's imprisoning you? The things of this world, maybe it's material things. You know, maybe we have the easy life. Maybe it's position and status. Well, if I get too vocal about this situation and you know, the boss gets word of it or the leadership of the, church, of, the, of the office gets wind of this, I might lose my position. Maybe it's position and status. Maybe it's pride or self-image. I'm not going to be one of those fundamentalists. Maybe it's fear. We must boldly proclaim the gospel of Christ and in the midst of persecution and in times of rejoicing and in times of trials, we will be persecuted will be mocked, will be reviled, but we must, we must, through God's strength and at his command, to prove what is that perfect will of God for all the world to see and to hear. We're the witnesses. We're the billboard. We're the advertisement. We're the message. We're the example for all the world to see. Have I not commanded thee? God said to Joshua when he takes over from Moses, he says, have I not commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. Here it is. For the Lord thy God is with thee wherever thou goest. Isn't that powerful? You realize you walk out these doors, you feel encouraged in here, right? You feel safe. They're not going to work me over in here. 
But you walk out those doors, God is with you. You have the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling within you. You have the strength and the power of God. You have your Lord and Master Christ. You can walk out those doors and with strength. He says, I've commanded thee, be strong and of good courage. So what do we take from this and how do we apply this to our church? An empowered church will face opposition. A praying church, a righteous and sanctified, that is set apart church, living for and according to his word, a church that has been built with Jesus and that has been with Jesus, a church that responds to the call and the command to evangelize the gospel, a church that witnesses through our actions and our compassion in our lives, it will be a successful church. And a church that is successful, that's our purpose. Why aren't we in heaven? I mean, why are we here? We're not here to drive fancy cars or to have a better position in the office. We're here to evangelize. God has made us vessels to evangelize to the world. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, the author and finisher of our faith. Father, the one who died for our sins, the one who's risen and sits at the right hand of God, the one who reminds us daily that we are his precious possession, the redeemed. Thank you for entrusting to us the church with the message of salvation for all the world to hear and see. And may you prepare the hearts of those that we would come in contact with, that we would meet. And may we press toward the mark of the high calling of Christ, that we would hear one day, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And we'll give you the glory for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.